Welcome back to I'm Interested. I'm Mike Greenberg. And my guest this week absolutely fascinates me. Uh, by the way, I have had people tell me that I use the word interested too much on these podcasts. But I'm going to do my best not to. People are telling me it's a drinking game now. People are listening to the podcast and they're taking a drink every single time I use the word interested. And, and just as a quick aside, I have a terrible personal association with that. Because when I was in college, I remember going to the Wrigley Field Bleachers to watch a Cubs game and we were we used to do a beer an inning and then we decided one game we were going to do a beer or a run and the Cubs gave up eight runs in the first inning and I don't remember much of the rest of that day so um, I must be careful with those things anyway I digress the the idea here for those of you who are new to our podcast is that I just find interesting people and talk to them about the things that make them interesting to me and my guest this week is someone who was a phenomenon that I don't know that I fully understand but over the course of the next 45 minutes or so, hopefully we will figure it out. He is the mouth of the South. He ha- hosts an incredibly, not just successful, but I think important from a sports perspective, radio program, hosts a TV show on the SEC network, is part of College Game Day, which I, I think at this point is ESPN's most successful show, most significant show, and he has become an incredibly important part of it. He's Paul Feinbaum, and and here's the way, Paul. I will start. Why are you looking at me like that? I, I just can't believe I'm here. But anyway, keep going. Well, where, where where were you otherwise expecting to be? No, I'm just I'm I'm loving this introduction. Okay, well, it's a good. It is, <laughs> I mean, thank you. I pride myself on those. Here's how I would describe you. My knowledge of you. I've been at ESPN a long time. I've worked in the media a long time, and I feel like on a Tuesday. I had never heard your name in my life. And on Wednesday, you were one of the three or four most important voices in the sports conversation. Paul Feinbaum, how did that happen? I mean, I I would love to give you a dissertation that that sounded uh, intelligent and well thought out and even maybe a a tad intellectual, but, but I don't think there's an easy answer. What I did, Greeny, is... I was a newspaper guy. I loved it. I never thought anything would be uh, better than that. I, I felt like if I hadn't gotten to the New York Times by the age 30, my life was going to be over, and it didn't work out. It, I, I got involved in some things, especially a lawsuit that circumvented my career from progressing, and, and I was devastated. So then I, I, I became a columnist uh, and knocked around Alabama, and, and it, it just kept moving down the road a little bit and and a couple of years ago it finally happened where people outside of a very small region began to to hear my name so i don't i i know you talk to a lot of people that that sometimes pinch themselves and they're not really sure where they are i'm one of those because uh i've seen it from all sides and, and i don't i still don't believe that even though i loved hearing what you said i'm not sure I quite buy in to that description. Is the the lawsuit you refer to is that public knowledge? Is that something oh, yes. that you've no, talked about? What I, I don't know it. What, yeah, what happened? I mean, this was like uh, in another lifetime. I was a newspaper reporter. I was an investigative sports reporter, uh, and we broke a big story. Uh, I won all these awards that usually get you to the next level, and I had a job at the Philadelphia Inquirer uh, that I was about to go accept the job on a Monday. And they called me Sunday afternoon and said, uh, we don't need you. We just found out you were in a lawsuit. And, and it was the, one of the most devastating moments of my life that this whole career that I had built from college 
uh, came to an end. And in some ways, I'm not sure I still have recovered from that because that's what I wanted to do. I, I'm glad now when I see the state of the newspaper business. Uh, what I, year was this? What, when are this we This is in about? the early 80s. Uh, I also I interviewed in, in Chicago. I thought I was going to get a job there. And, and so I regrouped. I, I wrote a column that, uh, gained some notoriety. I, uh, my first column was, uh, in the aftermath of Bear Bryant's death in a new era. And eventually I moved into radio and that took a very long time as well. So uh, I, you know, most people had not heard of me until I, I got to ESPN or right before that. Um, but so the career, I mean, I'm loving every minute of this. People say, uh, it must be arduous. Uh, and no, I mean, I'm, I'm in, I'm sitting in New York City. This is where I always wanted to be. My family's from here. Um, so I don't care, uh, it, it, you know, what anyone else says. I mean, I, I am at, at, you know, I turned 60 a couple of years ago. I'm having the time of my life at a time when most of my friends are long gone from the industry. So how, how, what were you doing before I knew of you? What were you doing on that Tuesday before I woke up on Wednesday and said, Paul Feinbaum is someone I need to know and need to get involved with? We were doing a radio show in, in, in Alabama, Greeny, and it had expanded to a regional basis. And probably the most significant thing that had happened was uh, Nick Saban came to Alabama in 2007. Uh, I changed uh, radio stations. Our ratings quadrupled. Uh, it, it was the Saban effect that's still going on. Uh, in 2010, Sirius XM picked up our show, and it, it gave me an audience and a voice to, to people that had never heard it before. They liked it. They thought it was crazy. Uh, it was a caller-driven show. We were, I, I say this with all the respect toward you. We were not Mike and Mike where we could grab the A-list guests. I mean, we were in Birmingham, Alabama, mm-hmm. Uh, so we turned the show into a caller driven show and became an insane asylum. Uh, and all of a sudden these, these normal people that had never had a voice were celebrities. And I embraced that and I think that's really what happened. So the show goes national and, you know, it, it's one thing to say you're on national. Sirius XM is a great medium, but there's a lot of stations. Mm-hmm. Um, something happened in 2011 that, that, that probably was the biggest change. Uh, we had a guy call our show. Um, he had talked. He, I, I didn't really believe what he, he was saying. He was he was rambling on, and then finally he admitted on the air that he had poisoned the iconic tumors oak trees sure. at Auburn University. This year, I was at the Iron Bowl. Okay, and I saw where they put a Scam Newton jersey on Bear Bryant's statue. Well, let me tell you what I did. I went to Auburn, Alabama, because I live 30 miles away, sure. and I poisoned the two tumors trees. Did they die? They're not dead yet, but they they, will they, they, they definitely will die. Okay. Roll down tide. Nothing happened for a couple of, about two weeks later. Uh, the story blew up. It was, the guy's name was Harvey Updike. It became one of the biggest stories in college football. Uh, and if you're not an Auburn fan and if you don't follow the South, these trees are the are, are they're, they're a religious experience for Auburn fans. After every win, they rolled them with toilet paper. There were tears. And that that became part of a 30 for 30 by ESPN, Roll Tide, War Eagle, which gained me some more notoriety. But the biggest moment of my career, interestingly, was because of a print article. It went right back to the beginning in 2000. And at the end of 2012, the New Yorker magazine had not done a piece on a college football person in about 10 years, and David Remnick, the highly respected editor, uh, he, he is uh, an icon to anyone uh, in the written world, 
suggested uh, the piece. Uh, the writer asked around. They decided, Saban obviously didn't want to do it, uh, so they followed me for about six months, and the story came out uh, on an early December day in 2012, and my life changed that moment. Uh, the next day, uh, I heard from a literary agent. Uh, three months later, uh, 12 publishers uh, were vying for a book about my experiences, and uh, at the time, uh, I had hired an agent because my career was changing, and uh, he, uh, he, he talked to John Skipper at the time, the, pre- the president of ESPN. Skipper admitted that he, quite frankly, didn't know who I was. Uh, the agent, Nick Kahn, said... I'm vaguely familiar with him, yeah. <laughs> I know you are. Uh, he said, well, there's an article coming out. I'll send you the article. The article came out. Skipper, Skipper read the article and said, we've got to hire this guy for ESPN. I know that's a fairly lengthy story, but that's how I got from zero story. to 90 uh, in in a couple of seconds. And you were how old? And just for the purposes of... I think uh, I was... Uh, are, Nick Conn uh, is my uh, agent also, but yeah. that has nothing to do with this. And you were how old when that happened? I was uh, 57, I believe. So at the age of 57, you are hosting a small, comparatively small radio show in Birmingham, Alabama, and then you wake up one day, and David Remnick has done... A feature on you for the New Yorker, and twelve publishers are vying for you, and the the president of ESPN is being told this is a guy you need to hire. What was interesting, and I got a little bit ahead of myself, but I want to back up. So, in June of that year, I was looking to make a move. My contract was up at the local radio station, um, so I I I asked uh, Mike Sly, the, the the late commissioner of the SEC. I said, I need some help. And he goes, um, I, need to, I need an agent. And he found an agent for me in New York. I'm not going to mention his name. And it took six weeks to set the meeting up. So I come up here. And within about three minutes, he says, what do you want? I said, I'm, I'm, I want a job. Uh, I think I want to go to work for uh, Sirius XM. They're trying to hire me. He said, no, they're not going to hire you. I go, really? He goes, no. He said, you're a local guy. I said, well, is there anything else? I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not used to New York meetings. I mean, I... I thought it lasted an hour or two. I mean, we're we're not even at the five minute mark, and the guy goes, uh, "What else?" I go, uh, "ESPN." He said, "ESPN's not going to hire you." I said, "Okay." Uh, anything else? I go. I mean, I was at, I was I, I was literally out uh, outside in Central Park. The building was where the Apple Store is, mm-hmm. um, and I was talking to myself because uh, I I told my friends this was the moment. I called my wife. I said, "You know, we're going to spend the rest of our lives in, in Birmingham, Alabama," and she said, "Well, that's fine." Try to be supportive, crushed, of course. Um, and and then I had one more meeting uh, that day before I went to LaGuardia, and it was with a, a blogger f- uh, for the New Yorker, where where the uh, the genesis of that story came. So it, it's it's one of those moments where it it is still surreal to me. And and then a couple of months later, Mike, I'm I'm on the game day set. Uh, I walk in a meeting, and there's Herb Street and Corso and Desmond Howard. And and Chris Fowler and I'm still somewhat amazed. A couple of weeks later, I'm in uh, Evanston, Illinois, and I meet you for the first time. And I mean, I I, I never quite lost the uh, the child enthusiasm for what I was doing, and I still haven't. Yeah, you, you get worn down, as you know as well or better than anyone else. But it, it's still when when it happens late in life. I think it means more. I mean, this is what I wanted in my 20s and 30s. And by the time I was at the end of my 50s, I had, I had given up on it. So 
I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to, to soak in every moment of it. That is a genuinely fascinating story. And, uh, it makes me feel a little better that I'm not the only one who didn't know who you were on Nobody a Tuesday and then knew who you were on a Wednesday. Okay. Here's the next thing I'm interested in. Help me. I, I grew up in New York City. Um, I have, I developed a passion for college football by going to college and, and thus rooting for our team. I went to Northwestern University, who at that time was a terrible football program. And so in the absence of having a, a really good program to root for, I, I, I have always sort of rooted for the Big Ten uh, as, as a rule because I would see them come through basketball and football. Um, but, but, but even with that, and I've come to appreciate college football, I think, now more than practically any other sport as a talk show host. Because of the enormity of every single game. Every single weekend, there's a championship-level game. So I love it. But I do not think I understand the level of passion that exists for it in the southeastern part of this country. It is something that hosting a national show I came to witness. Mm -hmm. I've seen it in action. Help me understand it. Well, when, when you let's let's just talk about where I've spent most of my life in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, there's nothing else, uh, and I don't mean to be dismissive. There, there's a James Beard restaurant just won the James Beard Award. Uh, it's it's culturally a lot farther along than than it used to be, but in terms of sports, there there's no there's nothing to wrap your arms around. You, you, I'm I'm the son of a Yankees fan. Uh, my mom uh, was in labor. On October 3rd, 1951, with my older sister, listening to a transistor radio on the Bobby Thompson home run. I mean, that's what I grew up with. Uh, but if you grow up in Birmingham, Alabama, you know Bear Bryant, and, and now you know Nick Saban. And you, you literally, I, th I think men in, in, in that area, and you can, you can go to Mississippi or Georgia or Florida and a lot of other places as well, it becomes a, a measure of their manhood by how their team plays. And that's how you end up with the Updike incident and others. And it's what you talk about, you hear about it. And when you, when you enjoy the success uh, that Alabama did in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and obviously now, it permeates your, your psyche, and I, I also think it just becomes who you are, uh, and you, you, you're you ordained to go to a certain school because of your parents or, or your relatives, and, and, and ultimately, that's, that's how you are defined. You can laugh at it if you want, but I've, I've witnessed this, and these, these are good people. Uh, may not be as educated, may not may not be as sophisticated, but that's that's how they determine their their worth. And and I think you also have to go back to a different time where uh, just in Alabama, for instance, this is a state that that went through and has has an ugly past. Uh, it it went through the the 60s where the the people in New York uh, looked down on them. And and I, I'm of the opinion that the, it was justified. Uh, I, I, I abhor what, what happened in that state during this period. Uh, the, everything was 49th or 50th, uh, highways, education, uh, health care, but Alabama was number one in football. And so that became what young people wrapped their arms around, and, and that became who they were. I'm getting it. So I wrote in, a, in, in the first book I ever wrote that the best thing about sports is that there's nothing in the world better than investing everything into something that means absolutely nothing. Exactly. But part of that 
is the understanding that it means absolutely nothing. Like, I love the Jets and I love the Northwestern football and all of that stuff. But it is not my identity. I I, I don't measure my own self-worth based on that. Is that healthy? Is that is that a good thing, a bad thing, or indifferent? Well, I, I can't sit here and, and 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 diminish the worth of people who who have made me everything I am, and, and I really do feel responsible to to the to the fans because I, I think we've given them a voice. No, it's not healthy uh, to live your life based on the outcome of a football game. I mean, I'm married to a physician. I know a little bit about health, not much, but but I know I know what's not healthy. But I don't really have a big problem with it because I, I think I probably participate in that. I feed it. Um, and, and I think I've, I've always felt that those who, who, who measure themselves by things like that are probably happier than those of us who, who have done other things. Um, that's fine. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't judge them and I'm not, I'm not trying to sit up, be on a high horse here. That's not what I do. And you know that. But, uh, if people have a good time with it, I mean, I, I I'm, at, I'm on, I'm on campuses every Saturday, uh, and we get there early to do all the usual stuff, Mike. And, and I see people camped out. I see people in motor homes who have, I mean, they'll drive their motor home on Tuesday, come back, drive back home and then come back on Thursday. I mean, I don't know what they do there all day, but, but what they do, but they always seem happy. I mean, they're, they're, they're talking to their next door neighbor in the motorhome. They're having fried chicken. They're drinking beer. They're, they're talking about games 30 years ago, 40 years ago. I mean, I, I, I would dare say they're happier than I am. I want to make it clear. I'm not judging them either. I, I, I'm fascinated by the idea because the one thing that would concern me about, I, I agree with you. The one thing that would concern me about it is that people, if you are deriving on some level your own sense of self-worth, I'm not talking about how you view others, yeah. but your own sense of self-worth, when things aren't going well, are you feeling personally responsible? Do you feel badly about yourself? These people who are calling into your show, and I love it. Hmm. If, if When Alabama was bad <laughs> before Saban got there, did they feel worse about themselves no, than they do today? Absolutely not. Here's Alabama football. I mean, there's Bryant and then there's Saban. And the interim was terrible. I mean, <laughs> Alabama had a coach, uh, Alabama had a coach, Mike Dubose, who won a championship, but got fired because he was having a relationship. Uh, Dennis Franchoni came next, and he was replaced by a guy named Mike Price, mm-hmm. who never got to his first game because yeah. he got into a scandal. And then they had more, more failure, but at every juncture, uh, Alabama fans either would live off the past or look to the future. They, they are not a, they're not a group that, that ever doubts who they are and what they are going to be. Um, but, but I, I, I think your, your, your overall point is a good one, but, but to, I will tell you one story. Harvey Updike, back to him. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to know him. Not that I really wanted to, but I, but I did. He, he came to visit me once or twice. I actually visited him in jail. And he, t- I asked him one time, it may have been in jail, I and mean, he's in an orange jumpsuit. And I said, Harvey, I, why did you do this? Why did you go to a, 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 a store, buy pesticide, and poison a tree? He said, because I had to. I said, you had to? He said, yeah. He said, Auburn cheated to get Cam Newton. The, and we were ahead of them 24 to nothing, and, 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 and he called them Scam Newton. And Scam Newton brought them back, and then they had the nerve to desecrate the Bear Bryant statute at, at, at Bryant-Denny Stadium. He said, and I had to do it. I said, you had to do it for, for whom? He said, I did it for Nick Saban. He said, because he couldn't do it himself. And, and the, I mean, 
Mike, he was dead serious. He felt like he had done this. I mean, I, I'm sure a, a great defense lawyer could have gotten him off. I think in the end it was some type of insanity plea. I don't know what it was uh, because the guy the guy was off his rockers to a certain degree. But a lot of Alabama fans liked him. They felt like he was standing up for them. Now the elites, uh, the, the 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 elite alums who, who who sit in the boxes, they wanted nothing to do with this guy. I remember I ran to Joe Scarborough's I become friends with him. He said, This guy this guy should be banned. I said, Of course he's banned. I mean they're not gonna let this guy back on campus, Joe. But that uh that's the dichotomy of a fan base. Uh you always have the the upper crust and then you got and I relate I mean, don't ask me why. I mean, I, I, we were not wealthy. Uh, we were middle class people. Um, and, and I'm not, uh, running, uh, for public office on, on some socialist campaign, but, but I relate to the, the, the average fan who, who, who is scorned by, by those wealthy people. And they say that, and this is a part of, a, another part of what we do is they say that those who didn't go to the school have no right to cheer. That's ridiculous. I mean, this is not pro football where everybody's a family. If you want to cheer for Alabama uh, because you live in Alabama or you you live in Kansas City, that's great. You're still the same fan as the guy who pays 50000 or 100000 for the box. We will continue in a moment with more of my conversation with Paul Feinbaum. But first, I want to tell you about LinkedIn. You know, the right hire can make a huge impact on your business. And that's why it is so important to find the right person. But where do you find that individual? You could try posting on the job boards, but can you really be sure the right person sees your job? Instead, find the person who will help you grow your business with LinkedIn. As the world's largest professional network, people go to LinkedIn every day to grow professionally and discover job opportunities. And 70% of the U.S. workforce is already there. LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on more of who they really are, their skills, their interests, and even how open they are to new opportunities. This way, your job gets seen by more of the right people. Most LinkedIn members haven't recently visited the top job boards, but 9 out of 10 members are open to new opportunities, so you can only reach them on LinkedIn. That's why a new hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. And businesses rate LinkedIn 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. So here's what you do. Hurry to LinkedIn.com slash Greeny. You'll get $50 off your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com slash Greeny to get $50 off your first job post. LinkedIn.com slash Greeny. Terms and conditions apply. Let's move to something different. Um, the podcast is called I'm Interested because I've said for many years that I'm in the interesting business. Mm-hmm. I need interesting people doing interesting things. I almost don't care what they are. There aren't too many people in sports I find more interesting right now than Nick Saban. Um, because he's another one I don't understand. I can't quite figure him out. So help me. Psychoanalyze Nick Saban for me. Let's start with a father complex. Uh, he, his, his father ran a gas station in, in West Virginia, but he was also his coach, his peewee coach and his uh, coach growing up. And, I mean, it's a, it's the story, uh, for those who like, uh, Pat Conroy of the great Santini, the, 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 the guy who could never please his military father. And I think that's the basis of Nick Saban, that at the age, he's, he's, he'll turn 67 years old on Halloween night, Halloween morning, whatever you want to call it, and he's still trying to please his father. The man is never satisfied, and he never will be satisfied. And, and, and Mike, you're one of the most successful people in the industry, and I dare say that very little satisfies you. You're, you're not looking at what you did well during the show. You're going back, okay, I could have done that better. 
that's that's greatness in an individual field. And, and, and I've never run into one quite like Saban. I mean, people want to compare him to Belichick. I don't know Belichick well enough to know, but Belichick actually looks happier these days than I've seen him in a long time. Saban never looks happy um, because he's not. Uh, he He's a control freak. He's a bully. He's all these things that you want to throw at him in a negative way, but it's also what makes him great. He takes great satisfaction in teaching, and I think that's what separates. He's not in this for the money, even though he makes $11 million a year. He's in it to teach, and I think he's a little bit in the legacy business now. But because he could have walked away last year after the two a touchdown and had the, and it would have been similar to Michael Jordan hitting the winning shot against Utah. Of course, we know how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he, he, he does not let himself get distracted. He uses a phrase that he got from a psychologist called mental clutter. Do not let your mind be affected by extraneous events. Only focus on what you can do better. Improve that. It's not, it's not doing a thousand things well. It's doing one, one thing uh, a thousand times to make sure you know what it is. And, and, and I think he's, fa- he's fascinating in that regard. Uh, I've spent a lot of time around him. I know you have. He's not a pleasant guy to hang. I, I don't want to go to the lake with this guy. I don't want to go fishing. I don't. I don't really want to play golf with him um, because he is uh, a couple. A couple of, about, about ten years ago, I had a, I had a serious uh, issue. Uh, I had a detached retina. Um, they thought that they couldn't figure out what was wrong, and in the end, they they went MRIs and CAT scans. They thought for a second maybe I had a brain tumor. So Saban heard about it. Somebody put him up. You know, he calls me up. How you doing? I said, I'm great. So I started to explain. I mean, anyone who's who's ill just wants to tell the next person everything. You know, I think the nurse came in at 730. uh, They gave me my lunch. So I'm like rambling on about maybe having a brain tumor. So two weeks later, I see Saban. I mean, I'm thinking, yeah, brain tumor. You're going to find how's your brain tumor? I mean, did you have one? Did you not have one? Are you going to live? Are you going to die? He, he, he said, how you doing, buddy? I said, uh, great, coach. He goes, he said, uh, how'd the shoulder surgery go? <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> he, I mean, he, he knew something. But he, I mean, that's, that's his attention span. Uh, he's like a senator uh, calling, uh, hey, hey, my great, how, how's Stacy? Uh, how the, how's the kids? How's the dog? And then he gets to the next person. Sure. That's who he is. Um, but, that, yeah, you can't get mad at that. Uh, you just have to accept it. No, he did get mad, though, when I suggested he wasn't having fun. So, there was a famous, I forget which of the championships it was, but one of the championships they won, there was a famous moment where as the confetti is falling or something, he pulls a card out of his pocket and he starts writing notes down. And I brought that up to him in an interview. I don't know him one millionth as well as you do. I'm just interviewing him. Um, and I brought that up as a as an illustration of the notion that he doesn't seem to be having fun. And he got very mad, bordering on offended. Yeah. By that. So he thinks he is having fun. The uh, first championship he won in, in 09 against Texas, uh, he went into the locker room and he, he thanked the seniors. He said, but the rest of you, he said, uh, two days from now, we're going to reconvene. He said, we had, a, we had a two touchdown lead. We nearly blew this game. I'm not happy about it. I saw him a week later. Uh, we were at the Bear Bryant Awards for the coach of the year. And, I, and you, know, you, you walk up and we're in a, a cocktail party and I see him on the side. So I kind of walk up to him. And for the next 35 to 40 minutes, he talked to me with his back to the uh, to the group for one reason. He, he didn't want to talk to me. He just didn't want to talk to anyone else. So he locked into me and we're rambling. I said, well, coach, congratulations. He goes, yeah, thank you. But, you know, every time you, 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 you win something and you accomplish something, it creates a whole new set of problems. I'm like, going, OK, well, maybe you should have lost. I mean, I didn't say that, but that's who he is. And, and I think he's getting a little bit better. I mean, he knew the last time 
that was special because uh, he had lost the year before on the last play. So I, I think it did mean a little more. And he, he talked about the joy because he finally understood it. But that's the first time I've ever seen him happy after a championship. That is one of the great moments in sports history, right? Here's here is a, a legendary coach with a move that that goes on his tombstone, right? Or, or certainly goes in the opening sentence of his obituary, of his professional about him. Yeah. I'm not trying to you know kill Nick Saban. Of his professional obituary. Well, a lot of people would like to see that. I understand. <laughs> in the opening sentence, Nick Saban, comma, Hall of Fame coach Alabama, comma, who once changed Absolutely. quarterbacks at halftime of the championship game and wound up winning with a kid named Tua Tango Vailoa. That is one of the great moments ever. Yes? Absolutely. And don't forget, uh, two years earlier, he called an onside kick against Clemson. The game was over. He, he was going to lose the game. So uh, I always thought that was the best move, but nothing nothing compares to what we saw. And by the way, it all happened because a guy missed a chip shot field goal. Wait, Phil, at the at the end of regulation, uh, Alabama had a, had about a twenty five yard field oh, goal. Yes. That, that the bomb wins. <laughs> the, the, the 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 overtime happens because they yeah. missed a chip um, field goal. So, uh, but yeah, I mean that that's who he is, and I I think that uh, it doesn't really. He's not. A, I, I asked him. Uh, I spent a couple of days with him once doing for a piece for OTL, and and I got into politics a little bit, and I said, let's go back to uh, when you were in Miami. Uh, George W. Bush came down. Uh, to training camp, uh, his first year, and he, and, and they, they set up a dinner at Joe Stone Crab, the famous, uh, oyster house, mm-hmm. uh, in Miami Beach. And it was going to be Dan Marino and Saban, and Saban stiffed the president of the United States. I said, why didn't you do this? And he looked at me kind of like he did with you. He said, what do you mean? Why didn't I? I said, I said, coach, he's the president of the United States. He wanted to have dinner. It was like week two of training camp. He said, he said, let me tell you something. He said, I have an obligation to 100 people on that football field. I'm supposed to be there. I'm supposed to manage. I said, I don't have time. to." It's, it's not, then he realized, he said, not that I disrespect the president. I have great respect for the presidency. I mean, he went into that long, drawn-out deal, but he didn't care. Uh, it didn't matter if, 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 if the pope had shown up, uh, Putin, Trump, uh, <laughs> all wrapped into one. Uh, he is. That's just who he is, and you, you have to respect that. I do, and I'm fascinated by it that's really the point i'm making is that that's so far from my own mentality that i just can't put myself in it and 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 i understand that it is what makes him successful i fully get that um but i just and i think there were some people i think tiger woods has a little bit of that um i was around jordan uh, that's where i got my start was covering him he had a little bit of that but not nearly like this belichick might be a good example of it i really don't know but belichick if you talk to people who know him they will tell you he's fun, he's funny, he goes to Bon Jovi concerts, and he does all this, and, 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 and Popovich loves wine. I don't think Saban, I, I don't know this, I don't get a sense Saban really has any other concern or interest practically at all. <laughs> he, I, the, the most engaging conversation like I've ever had with him, we, we had some downtime doing, some, doing this piece once, and somehow I knew he was an Eagles fan. Not a Philadelphia Eagles fan, but the, the rock group. Oh. And the next thing you know, 30, 40 minutes, we're going over uh, the set list of, of Hotel California. Um, but he's a creature of habit. After every game, he gets in the car. Uh, with his wife, they play the same song. He, does, he eats the same breakfast. What song? Uh, I'm trying to. It may be a Michael Jackson song. He he is this 
the same. And, and that's what he believes in. And that's what he wants. It, that he, it's a trickle down to his team. Always do the same thing. Don't deviate. And that's why this whole Jalen Hurts thing is so, so aberrational to him because it's, he's never really treated a player like that. So we just looked it up. The song is Gimme Shelter by the That's Rolling it. Stones. It's not, uh, sorry, Michael. <laughs> Man in the mirror, it's not. And, and, and by the way, I, I, when I, uh, when I heard that, uh, for the first time, I looked at, I looked at the lyrics of Gimme Shelter and they're, they're not exactly family lyrics. That's fascinating. There's probably no reason for it other than he heard it once after he won a game. So he's going to keep doing the same thing. Remarkable. Oh, let me ask you then tangentially. He is, to me, the greatest coach of all time. He is running the most successful program of all time. He's almost 70 years old. It, it can't go forever. Who succeeds him? I, I feel he has destroyed the SEC. At the same time that he has made the, he's destroyed it. Because he has, he has so dominated that practically every other program has had to turn over their coaches and turn over everything they're doing in trying to compete with him, and no one can. Uh, much in the way that Belichick has destroyed the AFC East for 20 years. Yeah. And I've seen that up close and personal as a fan of the Jets. You're constantly chasing that guy. You can't beat him. So you wind up giving up on things that might actually have worked, but you just give up because you can't get past that one guy. So my question to you is, who succeeds him? What happens in the SEC when the Saban era ends? Well, I think that's what the, that's why Texas A&M went after Jimbo Fisher. They're hoping he's the guy. I, I would probably bet more on Kirby Smart than Saban. Uh, Kirby Smart's like Saban's son. They think alike. They, they act alike. But they I, like each other? I don't think so. Uh, and, and, and they'll both deny this, but uh, when, when Kirby left, uh, Saban's acolytes accused him of, of stealing the recruiting list, of turning players against him. And I, I frankly think the relationship is, is fairly contentious at the moment. I mean, you, they don't show it, but, but, but I, I feel pretty comfortable in saying that. I think the the most likely or unlikely, because he's such a nice guy, is Dabo Sweeney. Uh, the people that follow him, I don't want to use the word cult, but it's like that. I mean, he he has a way with recruits. He is he is charming, and he does it with a smile. Uh, a couple of years ago, I would have told you Tom Herman. I wouldn't say that anymore. Urban Meyer had a shot at it, by the way. If you go back to the 2015 season, Urban had three championships. He had just beaten Saban. He had the best team in the country with Bosa and Ezekiel Elliott. He, he threw it all away that afternoon against Michigan State at home. And, uh, I think had he won his fourth that year, especially beating Saban, we would be having a totally different conversation now. But because of that one year, uh, and I think obviously because of what's going on now, Urban will never come close. I'm with you. How about, Specifically, though, in the conference, what happens to the vacuum that is left behind in the SEC, the most significant, whether on any one given year they're the best or not? They're right now, they are the most significant conference in college football. What happens to the conference in the, when, when Nick Saban, whenever the day comes that he's well, it, it will lose it, it will lose not only the biggest star, but uh, right now, as you've said, I mean, he, he is so dominant. I, I, I am of the opinion, and, and I, I could, forever be wrong on this that Saban is going to realize that the gap is narrowing uh, he knows what is the, it it's not discernible yet but uh, but the wear and tear on on being on top as you have seen so many times is, is incalculable I think uh, it, this, oh, wait, hold on one second he's been in the championship game three straight years he won two of them and and I've heard you say he has the best team he's ever had right now he does but it's it doesn't take much to, to blow I'm not saying he won't win this year I'm just saying 
at some point, Kirby Smart is recruiting at a level that is downright scary. He beat Saban last year. First time Saban has really been beaten by someone close. Florida State maybe has done it once or twice uh, when they had it going uh, with Jimbo. But, but Saban made changes on his staff after winning a title. That doesn't happen uh, because he, he he's concerned about what Kirby Smart is doing. I think Jimbo Fisher is close to doing the same thing. I, the feeling among some people in that league is that if he wins it again or if he doesn't and, and then he's unable to, that, that, it's, that it's, it's going to become a, a, an issue. I mean, I don't believe that as great as Nick Saban is, he will just win every year. I mean, we see it with Belichick. I mean, Belichick's, what, lost three Super Bowls? Yeah. Uh, He's made eight Super Bowls. Yeah, uh, so I mean, it does happen. It doesn't take much for it to happen, and I don't. But think that he, doesn't mean that he's losing it. But, I mean, but, you're not supposed to win every year. He has set a. He has now set a standard that no human being could live up to. If you're a fan of Nick Saban, you really do expect to win every year. I, I mean, Alabama fans were, were were miserable when they lost to Clemson. I mean, they were they were they had an undefeated season. Right. They lose on the final play of the year, and. It is like, how could that happen? So, I mean, I think the pressure it gets to you after a while. That I get. So, so for the first time in this conversation, I get it. The, 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 the misery, if you will, yeah. of Sabin, that the expectation, and, and again, I've never lived in a place that small. So I've, I've, always, I've lived all my life either in New York or Chicago. So I'm talking, you know, there's millions of people. I, as, as much as my face has been on TV for a long time, most places I go, most people don't know who I am when I walk in the door. Where he lives, th- this is this is the ultimate bubble, right? So, so that part of it, I get that that piece of it, that pressure is something that I can imagine would be extraordinarily difficult to, to it live is, with. Uh, his wife Terry told me that, that they like to go to the movies, so she will go buy the tickets. He will hide in the car, and at the last second, he'll run. I mean, you, he can't go. I mean. You couldn't go anywhere in Alabama because it's, it is a small state and they know who personalities are. Um, I, I, I just, the thing that scares Saban and he says it and I believe it is that he doesn't know what he would do. And that's the fear of a lot of people as they get to a certain age. And it, it, it he saw his father die at an early age. He doesn't want to do that. And people say, well, he'll go to television. ESPN, this is not a secret here, has tried to uh, hire him a couple of years ago to be on college game day. I can't see that. I mean, Mike, you work in this industry. Uh, You're on college game day, and you've been on the set enough times. You're sitting in in a trailer, and and some, with all due respect, some 24-year-old guy is is telling you, uh, you need to go out and do a sports center hit at 7.15 a.m. You don't (laughs) tell Nick Saban that. Um, And and then, uh, Coach, uh, sorry, uh, we ran long. We're not going to use you. Uh, I I just cannot see him doing that. I don't know. Uh, I always thought there was a chance he might get back in, in, in the NFL, and certainly the Giants rumors were out there, and I think there was a modicum of truth there. I don't think that's any longer in, in his plans, but I, 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 do, I do believe, though, it will end sooner than everyone believes. Alabama gave him a new deal a couple, of year, a couple of weeks ago just to shut the rumors up, but they will not go away. Mike, I covered the end of Paul Bryant. The, the, his age got to him. He was 69 years old. And he was starting to lose on the recruiting trail. And and it, it's not a long process. The second you lose, the second you look vulnerable, you are dead. But he didn't he die like a month after well, he yeah, retired? Yeah, he, he did. But he was he was start, He lost Bo Jackson. 
uh, account. No, I understand. But the point I'm making but, is this is what Saban is looking but, at. But is I, I retire and I and exactly. I'm and I'm dead a month later. He doesn't. Want I used to, to say that about my own father. I would say my father, if he stopped working. Would be dead in a minute, and if he keeps working, he'll live a really long time. And he lived to be almost eighty-four. So, uh, I, I think the point is is right. He he can he can coach for as long as he's he's healthy to coach, as long as he's winning though. But Nick Saban is not going to be an average. I mean, average coach. And that's the problem. Let's say, I mean, for most programs, ten and two is a good year. That would be a disaster for right. him. I mean, he used this line last year after the Clemson loss. He said, "Don't waste a failure." What? And, and this year he said, "Don't." Uh, he came back and said, "Well, don't waste the success." I mean, at some point he's going to run out of those cliches. All right, one more thing for you, um, and that is about amateurism. Um, you you live in college athletics as much as any adult I know, um, and you have been around. And I'm I'm fascinated by your perspective on this. Where do you stand on on the issues of amateurism that I think right now are so incredibly important and meaningful and relevant in college sports? Well, I think it's shameful the way the NCAA treats amateurism. There's so much hypocrisy. There there are so many double standards. And and I I think in, in an age where we're seeing more activism from young people, it's going to boil over where the NCAA at some point, and I think it's soon, whether it's legally or or just from common sense, we'll have to back down. Uh, they can't get away with what they've been getting away with. And uh, and then what will happen now? Will will kids get? Are they, will that mean paying players? Will I, I, that mean likenesses? I, what will it mean? I, I think they have to let up on the likeness. Uh, they're going to lose that battle anyway. So I, I think ultimately it's going to happen. I can't give you a date because Mark Emmert has sworn the president of the NCAA that it will happen over his dead body. Um, but that, that's not. That's not a, a a stance you can you can get away with in today's world. Paul Feinbaum, this has been everything I was hoping it would be and more. I would like to spend five hours doing this, um, but I have really enjoyed getting to know oh, you a little you. bit. And uh, I don't just mean today, but just in general over the course of time. And I thank you for doing this. And, and I think it has been... It's just been terrific to sit here and chat with you. So thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. It's been a blast. All right. And so that's our conversation with Paul Feinbaum. And thank you again to Paul. What a fascinating discussion that was. What a fascinating rise to fame and success that he has had. And and what an interesting perspective and insight into the growth of, of SEC football and the passion that fans in that part of the country have for the sport. So, again, that was really terrific. Thank you again to Paul Feinbaum, and thank you to everyone listening here. And if I could ask you to do me a very quick favor, when you have a moment, if you could subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your podcasts, that would be terrific. It only takes a moment, and it would be much appreciated. That's it for this week. We will be back and better than ever again next Tuesday. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm Mike Greenberg. I'm Interested is the name of the podcast, and we'll see you next week.